You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So one of the hardest things in pe- uh, people in, in deconstruction, I think, go through is this feeling of um, that th- this, this terrible feeling that they don't know what they believe anymore. Anybody, anybody know what I'm talking about? This this can be quite scary and distressing, right? Uh, because when you're raised being told that the most important thing about you is what you believe, that this not only determines your eternal destiny, but also defines who you are, right? This most most important parts of who you are, losing your beliefs or even losing your your confidence or your clarity about what you believe, that that can be really scary, really distressing. And even now, in our post-evangelical, progressive, deconstructed state, however you want to define it, you know, um, we can still experience this, this tyranny of belief, this nagging question, what do I believe now? As if that's like the most important question we could ask ourselves, right? Um, and I'm not saying it's not an important question. It is, to a certain degree. I'm, but I'm, I'm saying that maybe it's not as crucial as we've been led to think it is. Uh, maybe we've been taught to believe in belief too much. Maybe we've been taught to believe in belief too much. One of the most important and liberating realizations I've ever had so far in in my spiritual journey has to do with this and how irrelevant I think belief actually is. And the reason why I I feel that way is because nobody can really know what they believe. This is an important insight that I think I gained. (laughs) Nobody can really know what they believe, whether they're conservative or progressive or atheist or theist. Beliefs are inherently emotive, unconscious, and therefore enigmatic. Let me say that again. What we believe about metaphysical things regarding God or the underlying nature of reality is inherently emotive and unconscious, and therefore also enigmatic. To say they're emotive means that our our beliefs are often based on feelings of certainty. And who knows how they really feel all the time, or who, who can control how they feel all the time? I know I can't. When I was a, a teenager, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I think every single week at church for, for years on the off chance that maybe last week I didn't believe enough and I therefore didn't really get saved. And, you know, of course, you know, that's what happens when you conflate cert- or belief with certainty, feelings of certainty, right? That's what happens when you define your faith as emotive belief, right? Feelings of certitude, which is a terrible way to go through life. It's incredibly stressful, right? How many of you prayed the sinner's prayer more than once on the off chance that you did in a few hands there? Exactly. I'm going to switch over to to this one, Babo, if that's okay. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a common tale for a lot of us coming out of evangelicalism, where belief was, of course, defined as emotive, feelings of certainty. Who can know how they really feel all the time? And who can control 
how they feel all the time. That's a problem, right? The other problem is that our beliefs are often rooted in our unconscious, which is to say our beliefs are often driven by hidden desires and anxieties we don't fully understand nor are fully aware of. Who could deny that what often drives people into religion and even into cults actually uh, are these unconscious fears like of eternal damnation or the unconscious fear of missing out on the good life or one's destiny? Who could deny that many people are drawn to spiritual communities because many, many such places promise, if not uh, overtly, or, or if it, it, it's at least inferred that, you know, by coming here and believing this way you will get the good life right you will you will achieve your destiny we here we offer self-actualization self-realization you will become your best self right and we so desire that and we so fear the lack of it that this is often what unconsciously drives people into religion and then even into cults actually as it comes as it comes to pass and again people really don't know that's why they're drawn because such messages play on the unconscious fears or anxieties and desires we all have. Or think of it this way. I was raised in a church that believed in what's called divine healing. This idea that if we just pray for the sick and pray with enough faith that God will always heal. But interestingly, there was always these unspoken rules about who you shouldn't pray for. <laughs> like, uh, we shouldn't, you, you shouldn't pray that God will regrow someone's limb if they're missing an arm or a leg, because obviously that's too hard, right? That's one of the unspoken. The other unspoken rule might be, you know, don't pray for anybody with a birth defect, right? Don't pray for anybody, uh, let's say, with, you know, someone with cerebral palsy or someone with Down syndrome, because obviously that's not going to get healed. That's just too hard to heal. These are the unspoken unconscious rules, uh, that existed in my Pentecostal church, right? Nobody, of course, said these things. In fact, one time I remember being over at the house of the then youth pastor, uh, where he raised this point. Why don't we pray for people with Down syndrome to get healed? And he used that as an example of how there's these unconscious unbeliefs within our community. He lost his job because of that question. Because you, if you raise that question, if you make that point, you know, the whole belief structure begins to crumble. There's certain things, unspoken rules, these unconscious unbeliefs that you can't give voice to, but they exist. Everybody knew what the unspoken unconscious rules were, what the, un, what the unconscious unbeliefs were in the community. Don't try to raise the dead at a funeral, right? We all know that's not a good idea, even though we believe that God could raise the dead. You don't, you don't try to raise the dead at a funeral. Everybody knew that, at least most of us did. Um, I want to, my father once almost tried to do that uh, because he suffered from some kind of mental illness, perhaps psychosis. But most people unconsciously understand that there's these un, un, unspoken rules, um, that things you're not really supposed to believe. This is how belief and unbelief is often unconscious, which is to say, we don't really know what we believe. That's the point here. We don't really know what we believe. Our beliefs are often just stories we like to tell ourselves about ourselves so that we can sleep better at night or perhaps fit in to our community, our tribe, our church. I like what the famous postmodern philosopher Jacques Derrida uh, once said. 
when he was asked if he was an atheist. He responded and said, I rightly pass as an atheist, but who knows? Maybe I'm not. Which is an interesting response. He said this because he loved religion and theology so much. He was so fascinated and so passionate about it that he thought maybe his passion meant that he did believe in God in a way. Who knows? In any event, he found such statements, I believe in God, or I don't believe in God. He found such statements to be nonsensical. Um, who could say such a thing, he wondered. Who could say such a thing? Who, who, who could know such a thing? First of all, which God are we talking about <laughs> when we say, I believe in God or I don't believe in God? Believe in God. Which, which God are we speaking of? But second, Derrida believed if someone says, I believe in God or I don't believe in God, who is I exactly? <laughs> who is speaking? This notion of I is very complex, right? We don't really know who I is. Forgive the bad grammar. <laughs> The fact is we are very complex beings and there are parts of us we have no access to that are often involved when we make such grandiose metaphysical claims. So I follow Derrida here and other philosophers when I say, I don't have much interest in belief anymore. Beliefs are emotive and unconscious and therefore enigmatic. Who could know what they really believe? And coming to that understanding was a major breakthrough for me because it set me free from this thing called the tyranny of belief and you know in other words from having to worry about my beliefs this idea that my beliefs are really what matters and what defines me or defines my faith uh, in other words this tyranny this tyrannical idea that we've got to get our beliefs right we, we got to make sure we're believing the right stuff no and I, and I find that this tyranny of belief often still exists even in post-evangelical circles uh, like this one even, it's found in this idea that after deconstruction must come reconstruction. Maybe you've heard that before, that after deconstruction, something must be reconstructed, um, which can be true, uh, clear about it, which can be true, but not always. And this notion that there needs to be reconstruction is really based on this belief in a kind of structuralism, which is to say some kind of belief structure, albeit very progressive or, or liberal one now, but a belief structure nonetheless. But I don't think we need to reconstruct some kind of clear belief structure. And I think the presupposition that we do is rooted in our past, in evangelicalism, and evangelicalism's dependent, dependency and an obsession with structures. Now, I want to be clear. I actually like structures. I'm more of a, a pragmatist. I like some structure, and I think we need structure in various parts of our lives, even in spiritual communities like this one. This is why we, we do events, and we have you know, weekly gatherings here on Sunday mornings where we hear some music. We might do some contemplative things like Bob did this morning. We share in the Lord's Supper every week. We, we pray for each other. We, I, I deliver a talk, and then we dialogue about it, right? There's, there's structure here. Structure is important. Structure is good. It connects us. It allows us to build community. Gives us a, a sense of being grounded in something, something physical, something real. Structure is good. I'm not saying it's bad, obviously, right? Um, but we're a community that structures itself 
not on shared beliefs like many churches do. We don't structure ourselves around a doctrinal statement, a set of shared emotive beliefs. Rather, we structure ourselves around a set of shared values and practices, which is still a structure, but it's kind of a radically different structure than you know, doctrinal structure, belief structures. But often, even in, in, in religion, in cir religious circles like this, we become too over-dependent on structures sometimes, especially belief structures. Interestingly, I want to talk a little bit about chaos theory here this morning. In chaos theory, which is a very broad school of thought that intersects with a variety of fields and disciplines, but, it, but in, in chaos theory in general, there is this idea that order arrives, or I'm sorry, rises out of chaos, order arises from chaos, or that chaos can actually be a kind of order all of its own. This is to say a system's life and energy and creativity requires continuous disruption in order to evolve and adapt. Nature itself shows us that chaos can be quite life-giving and creative, that it, that it gives space to novelty. And I think this is also true in religion in our spiritual lives, so to speak. Chaos, disruption, uncertainty, these things can actually be life-giving. And what gives us the greatest sense of spiritual vitality. I think other cultures outside of Western Christianity get this better than, than others, uh, get this better than we do. I'm thinking particularly of Hinduism and these uh, deities in Hinduism like Kali and Shiva, uh, Vishnu and Krishna. Kali and Shiva, of course, are the, are, the, are the deities of chaos and disorder and even death. And to be clear, that doesn't make them evil in the eyes of Hindus, as death and chaos are seen as necessary aspects of life and creation. On the other hand, there's, there's Vishnu and Krishna, which are the gods or the deities of, of life and order. That which brings balance to the work of Shiva and Kali. These, these gods and goddesses are not seen as adversaries to each other, but deities united for a common purpose. And the purpose to run the universe, to run the cosmos, as it were. Perhaps the closest thing we have to this in the Jewish or Christian tradition is the idea of Satan, who, of course, originates in the Hebrew scriptures in the book of Job. And it's interesting how Satan, or Hasatan, as he was called, is presented there. He's not seen as the adversary of God, actually. He's the servant of God, right? Satan is summoned to, to heaven to report that with all the other divine beings, like employees reporting to their boss about their activities and what they've been up to. Satan is called to heaven to report about, about what he's been doing. And after giving his report, Satan is ordered by God, essentially, to test Job's faith. So Satan and God in the book of Job are not adversarial at all. They have this kind of employer-employee, you know, king and servant relationship. They're locked in this strange partnership where they each have their roles and their functions to play. Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, God himself is presented as the bringer of both, you know, good and evil, life and death, chaos and order. Isaiah says, I, the Lord, form the light and create darkness. I bring both calamity and prosperity. I, the Lord, do all these things. We find similar ideas in Genesis, in, 
in the Psalms, and of course, in the book of Ecclesiastes, part of the wisdom tradition, right? It seems the ancient Hebrews were much more comfortable with seeing God this way than we modern Christians are. But I like to think that we are recapturing that comfort in deconstruction, in what we call deconstruction. I think deconstruction is often about learning to embrace chaos and knowing and ambiguity and learning to see these things as actually a kind of deeper spiritual dimension. So I've learned to see deconstruction not so much as a stage to overcome, right? Something to overcome with reconstruction, but rather as the very essence. Deconstruction, I think, is the very essence of spiritual vitality, uh, a way of, you know, clearing the floor, so to speak, and, and disavowing the, the toxicity and the nonsense often in our religions in order to more faithfully, hopefully, um, reflect the heart of God and find the heart of the divine. I think we can learn to see chaos and disorder and disruption as catalysts for novelty and innovation, where new understandings of God can be birthed and new forms of faith and spirituality can happen. New readings of scripture can be found. Who knows what might happen? <laughs> that's, that's kind of... The wonders of deconstruction are going down this path. Who knows what happens when you embrace ambiguity and chaos and disorder and disruption and make peace with these things in your spiritual life? Who knows what you might discover? It's a frontier. It's an open horizon. To some, that sounds utterly terrifying. To others, it sounds exciting and what it means to live by the Spirit. I'm reminded of something Jesus said in, in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Hear that again. The wind blows where it chooses. And wind was often a metaphor in the Bible for the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. You can feel it. You can hear it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. <laughs> so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Being born of the Spirit, I think, is to give yourself over to the wind. And who knows where you'll end up if you do that, right? Who knows where the wind might carry you? We're like sailboats on a great sea. And who knows what lies just beyond the horizon? It's an act of courage. It's an act of faith to unfurl your sails, to let the wind fill them up, and to take you out into the great unknown. That too is a kind of courage. That too is a kind of faith. The one that interests me most, I guess. May we be brave enough to unfurl our sails and let the wind show us the way. Let us enter into our time of communion here this morning. And the way that we do that here this, at Central, for those of you who are new, is you are invited forward in just a moment to take a cup, and that's just grape juice, and one of our gluten-free crackers. And you take that back to your seat and receive it as you will in your own time. And I would just want to encourage you as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning to meditate on this idea um, from John 3, what it means to be born of the Spirit and to give oneself over to the unpredictability of the Spirit and how that can be a, a deeper kind of spiritual experience. Let's contemplate that this morning. And Bob's going to 
play us just some contemplative music as we do that. And then um, when I feel like the timing's right, I will bring us back together for a little dialogue. But let's partake of the Lord's Supper now. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. is our time for dialogue that we hold every week if anybody wants to dialogue um yeah i've always i always open it up just you know any general questions or comments doesn't have to be a question complaints <laughs> that works too um but yeah anybody have any um and this applies to everybody online as well you can always unmute raise your voice that way but any questions or comments about deconstruction, reconstruction, the, the tyranny of belief, those kinds of ideas. Yeah. Yeah, Leland, let me give you the mic here. I'll come over to you. This way people can hear you on, online. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so something I've been thinking about, uh, is uh i i won't say names <laughs> hold the mic up close to your mouth oh sorry thank you uh i know someone who i was talking to recently about prayer and mm. they were saying you know i don't necessarily you know sometimes i believe in god sometimes i don't mm. uh, but i know prayer is something really important to this person and it it was something that was so like, strange to me like why do you believe in prayer if you don't believe in god Mm. And, um, and it's not a bad thing, just something I was thinking about. And um, and then this morning, as you were talking about just giving over to the, I guess, uncertainty of, of everything, and then leading into communion, it, it made me think about whenever I partake in communion, I think, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. Yeah. But in juxtaposition is what you were just talking about, of when Jesus said that, all the disciples then got into a debate about what that meant mm -hmm. and Jesus didn't chime in. And so it just got me thinking that like Christianity has always been about just belief that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And God incarnate didn't chime in to yeah. explain anything. So there's just something that like, this has always been that true belief or true, I don't know, just it's always been, and the struggle of, I don't know what I believe, but I believe it. Yeah. Uh, also, I don't, and I do. And it's, yeah. It's the weirdness of it. That's, no, I think that's really good. And I just was thinking as you were talking, bringing communion into it. You know, here we find the deconstructed God, literally, like the body and blood of Jesus. Um, you know, in a sense, uh, a friend who puts it like, um, here we find God's body and blood, you know, God's body is scattered among us as bread and wine, right? Um, and that obviously is very, that plays into this, these ideas of what deconstruction and reconstruction might, could 
mean to us? You know, we receive the deconstructed God and we become the reconstructed, you know, presence of, of the Lord, right? Uh, in, in each other's lives, hopefully, hopefully. But yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you for those thoughts. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that your friend engages in prayer, but doesn't really believe in God. That's interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Did I get that right? Sometimes losing God. Sometimes, sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because it's feelings. A lot of that's emotive, right? Yeah. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, anybody else this morning have comments or questions about any of this? How do you, how do you feel about this idea of, of disavowing the centrality of belief? Does that, does that make sense that the belief is I'm curious if that makes sense to you, Steve, you're nodding. Yes. That it makes sense that belief is emotive or unconscious and something that's kind of unknowable. Um, is that, did you find that relieving or is that kind of like terrifying? I guess I'm curious to hear your react. Anybody want to react to that? <clears throat> okay, if you don't. Oh, somebody's clearing their throat. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to unmute before I cleared my throat. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. I'm glad you did it. Hey, it's Emily again, right? It is Emily again. Um, Welcome back. As usual. Um, no, I think that th what you're saying actually makes like my faith be more comfortable within me because it's like I've said, like every week, I feel like I have less and less questions about things and I feel more settled mm. in the, the fact that all of that makes perfect sense. I mean, I was, I brought up something with my mom where I was like, cause you know, my, my little niece with the brain tumor, I mean, mm. the, that does she had a brain surgery? I was like, my cousin was, was like, Oh God is so merciful. And, you know, he's, and he, she was like praising him for taking care of the situation. And, and it just made me think like, well, what about the kid next door who it tested positive for cancer and, or it wrapped around their spinal cord. And now they have to have, you know, issues for the rest of their lives, like, or they don't survive. Like, what does that mean? Um, and, you know, if we're, if, if we only use 10% of our brains and probably sometimes less, um, why would God give us a whole brain and only allow us to use 10% or why would God save the one, the kid in, in one hospital room and not the kid in the other hospital room? If you know what I mean? Like yeah. these are all the questions that I've always had that basically made me question my faith. And it sort of kept me at arm's length from God because I was like, none of this makes any sense. And no one will answer the questions. Just like you're your old church that you don't pray for the people who, to regrow limbs because there's limits on what we can pray for, but we believe he can heal anything. Well, that makes yeah. no sense. And we're not supposed to be questioning things, but what you talk about every week, which basically makes it a real situation. You can then wrap your head around it inside. I can inside of myself now and go, Oh, well now I feel better about what I believe. And I feel, I feel closer to what I believe rather than further away, which is what I was when you can't ask questions, you know? Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think a lot of us echo, echo that. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. Jesse. Yeah. Leland. Thank you. <laughs> Just tag tag teaming off of that. It also helps to, to, to talk about belief as like 
responses and not necessarily emotional responses and not necessarily the embodiment of how we live mm. versus practices. Yeah. It helps then in looking at that way to give a little bit more compassion about um say people like my dad who are you know evangelical fundamentalists wrapped up in QAnon um that constantly harp on oh I believe this and I believe that and yet in the embodiment of how he lives in the world there are certain belief there are certain behavioral patterns that are a tomb of Christ and there are a lot of behavioral patterns that are not a yeah. tomb of Christ and in so to talk about being an emotional reaction to his insecurity of belief versus things that are deeply rooted and embodied helps me to have a lot more compassion yeah. than to just be like, you completely are a hypocrite in terms of how you function in the world or, um, yeah. So that, yeah, that's, that's a helpful way to look at it. And then we have like books like where action is what matters. Yeah. And those are the ones that are often undermined by evangelical structures yeah. because they're so rooted in that idolatry of belief. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I and I think you've if you've been attending Central for a while, you've heard me say what, and this is a quote from Peter Rollins. I didn't come up with this. But Pete likes to say, you know, your beliefs live in your actions, not in your head. And we've been taught the opposite, that belief lives in my head, right? My faith lives in my head. No, your faith actually lives in your actions uh, because your actions show you who you really are, right? I mean, and in that way, you know, you get to see what you kind of unconsciously believe by looking at your actions. Um, you know, I like to use the example of, you know, if I react, you know, like uh, out of anger, let's say at the house about something kind of random and i'm like why did i overreact oh i'm stressed about my job oh i've got this bill that's stressing me out it's not really about what lucy did it's it's the fact that i've got these unconscious anxieties right now about this that or the other thing but again like it lives in my actions right what i'm what i'm actually going through and dealing with um and that's and so i was gonna teach on that passage today where jesus says you know a good tree bears good fruit right and you you know you will know them by their fruit Jesus really taught against this idea of self-deception, right? And out of Matthew 7, I will probably preach on that soon. Um, anyway, it's really interesting. Thanks. Thanks, Jesse. All right. Anybody else today? Can I add one more comment on that? Yeah, sure. Who is? Oh, Leland, Leland yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I know already. But, uh, we've been re binging the new season of uh, Married at First Sight on Netflix. Well, what's it called? Married at First Sight. Okay. Yeah, it's... Uh, I won't get into it, but there was a, a person in it that was like, it's a couple that just got married and they were strangers and they were talking about love. Mm. And uh, one of the counselors said, you know, love is not something that happens to you. It's something that you work at. Uh, and I was thinking this morning during when Bob was reading that thing that, you know, I, I think that works, but we need to take it to society, not just our relationship and our, with our spouses, but if we want a society of love, it's something we actually have to work at. Yeah. And, uh, and so that comes with actions outside of just, well, I love my wife, so I'm going to work hard to make her happy. Mm. But also if we are going to be loving neighbors then we have to work within the community. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Well, thank you for being here today, everybody.
Um, we're ending a little bit early, I guess. It's 11.10, but uh, that's all right. Thank you to all of you who are participating online. And um, yeah, go in peace. Hang out and chat if you want, but uh, we are dismissed. See you next week.